Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Chad McLean, and today my guest is Shane Leanne, the athletic performance coach at the Sydney Swans Football Club. Prior to working at the Swans, he has been a strength conditioning coach at Leicester Tigers, Melbourne Rebels, and Rugby Australia. With over a decade of experience in elite sport, he is also currently embarking in his PhD on decision-making to make sound interventions. Highlights from this episode. Shane's top tips for strength conditioning coaches wanting to work in elite sport. What successful clubs do well and the need for a holistic approach. How Shane's coaching philosophy has evolved over his career and how Franz Bosch drills can be utilized in a team sports setting. Before we start this episode, for those coaches wanting to learn how to create an online coaching business, make an impact in elite sport, then our Coaches Academy is for you. You get access to our step-by-step roadmap to launching your own online coaching business, extensive training library, and exclusive discounts and tools. You'll also become part of our active and supportive community filled with strength conditioning coaches from all over the world who can help you along your coaching journey with practical feedback support and advice. All of this and more make our academy the number one place to be for a strength conditioning coaches wanting to start, manage and grow a successful coaching business. To join, head to preparelikeaproacademy.com.au. Let's get into today's episode with Shane Leanne. Welcome Shane. Thanks for jumping on, mate. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for inviting me on. I've listened to a few of your guests and it's a definitely insightful podcast. So I appreciate you having me on. Who would have thought a few years ago you'd have a picture of an oval yeah. <laughs> calling, it a pitch. calling it a pitch now or a field as you converted yeah i'm converting slowly i'm probably the default is still a it's still a pitch but yeah the the footy language is starting to creep in a little bit more yeah 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 i'm sure we'll, we'll go into it a bit more detail about the, the different sport demands and and all the technicalities but uh, yeah looking forward to diving in let's let's start the beginning of your career mate at, at what age did you discover you had a passion for strength and conditioning and, and more specifically working with elite athletes Oh, well, I guess that probably the, the one thing that everyone in, in my position has is that we're probably all failed athletes to a certain extent. I was a pretty average sportsman or, yeah, average to okay sportsman who was always kind of, you know, struggling to make first teams. And probably that developed an interest in, in developing physical capabilities. And I was coaching from pretty young age in Monster Rugby, which is my local professional team, ran summer camps. I would work on those summer camps as like a 16, 17 year old started coaching you know technical rugby with kids at quite a young age and i guess that some of those skills that i developed i didn't realize at the time some of those skills that i was developing then i've carried through the whole way but when i finished school i actually didn't really know what i wanted to do i'd say the sports science community was relatively small in ireland at the time so i actually went to university and studied a history degree and was playing sport myself at the time doing it started doing a little bit of strength conditioning work with the, the university teams there and discovered that that was a you know, a passion and something that I wanted to do. So I had a, a year left on my history degree. And luckily enough, university is free in Ireland, so I didn't run myself into too much debt. And then went over to UK to Loughborough University, which is a big sports science uni over there. And by the time I got there, I was pretty clear on what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. So I was coupling coaching regularly, amateur teams, and then getting some exposure with professional environments. And yeah, I guess it was pretty clear at the end of that process that I wanted to work in the professional sports environment, if that was a possibility. So I had a number of internships there with professional teams in primarily in rugby union and then working in amateur sport and across the university and in Ireland with some hurling and getting football teams, amateur rugby teams. Led to an internship with Leicester Tigers, which fortunately led to a full-time position at the end of that year. And yeah, here we are 13 years later and I'm fortunate enough that that's, that's my occupation. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things that'd be good to, to dive into there. That The fact that sports science wasn't the most popular career choice at, at the time. So through doing some strength conditioning at, at universities and other teams around the community, you got a bit of a taste for it. What, what, what do you reckon at that point in your career? Why did you choose that side compared to maybe the tactical, technical side of, of coaching? You know, I, I guess I probably didn't. I said I didn't consider a sports science or strength conditioning as a viable profession, to be honest. When I first yeah. school and when I was starting university, I didn't know that much about it. And uh, I, I guess I was always quite aware that my 
technical tactical knowledge around even around rugby union which was my primary sport it probably wasn't the the level of depth or understanding there that would have been required to 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 excel in that field and i guess just the nature of my own experiences being a sort of okay athlete an average to okay athlete that the interest in physical development was fostered at quite an early age with me and yeah. that became an area which i guess was a more natural progressions in terms of my my educational pursuits and you mentioned the internships and, and you had a successful process where you actually landed a job, a full-time job after the internship. For those SNCs listening in, obviously that's not always the case, but what do you think looking back now, what were some things that put you in good stead to, for the club to invest in you for, for your first full-time contract? Yeah, I guess I was quite lucky when I took that opportunity at Leicester Tigers. I was very clear that that's what I wanted to do. And I, and I actually think that's, that's part of the internship process. If you actually do a period of time and you realize maybe this isn't the profession for me or I'm more interested in another aspect of, you know, performance, be it analytics or video analysis or whatever it is, that that's part of the process too. But I was very clear about what I wanted to do. And I think I'd accumulated a quite a bit of experience in the amateur setting. And so I had practiced my coaching a fair bit. And then I had enough exposure in professional environments, not to add technical knowledge in an elite environment, but probably more to understand how to behave and interact in, in that environment. So I was, I was quite aware that I probably wasn't going to walk in for those who might not be aware, Leicester Tigers is what well, is the most successful team in, in UK rugby. They're a 11 time premiership champions and twice European cup winners. So it's a, it's a very established program. I was pretty conscious that I probably wasn't going to walk in there and be solving performance problems for the, invo- for, for the department there. But what I could do was, was provide physical work and, you know, do what was required to help the program run smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that. That makes a lot of sense. And be clear on, on where you want to go and then how you can contribute through assisting yeah. others in the environment. And then you're obviously absorbing technical knowledge as you spend time there. I remember sitting in, in the office and it's quite an established department. Now we've got colleagues that have gone from there into private industry. Some have gone to the NHL. One colleague went to the NBA, wanted to into into private industry and the technology side. I remember sitting early days in the office and not only not understanding some of the concepts, but not understanding some of the words. I'm having to sit there and Google behind my desk, pretending that I understood what was going on. But what I was able to do was yeah, contribute effort at the start. And then as your technical skills improve and develop, then then you're able to contribute more to the, the technical aspects of supporting a performance department. Yeah. And you mentioned something, I think pretty important point as well, is being able to understand the, the environment. It is a different beast working in elite sport and, and how it all flows. So those other internships that you did for, for those to get a better understanding on how much time you put in to get to that point that mm. led to the success of full contract what would be like a typical week while you're doing your in- internships yeah the dynamic of internships is, has changed significantly i guess since when i did it like that internship at leicester tigers was pretty much 12 months full time which was kind of the you know for no pay minimal pay yeah i think the dynamic of that has obviously changed in you know, in recent years, which is probably for the better. Through so, the club or through university? That was through the club, what they did through, because I sought that internship out myself independently, but at Bath Uni at the time did a placement placement opportunities there. And then I was coming from Luffer, which is another established sports science uni and had some experience. So I kind of was knocking on doors looking for internship opportunities at the at the time. And I definitely think that shift from that full-time internship model, I think that's pretty much dead now. But there's no doubt that that accumulating time in the saddle and accumulating experiences yeah. is, is what helps you. So I would probably encourage anyone who's starting out there that it doesn't necessarily have to be in a professional elite environment, but certainly logging time, making mistakes, learning from mistakes is, you know, is, is necessary to, to be able to contribute to a performance department at the highest level. Yeah. And you mentioned they're, they're a strong, proud club. Was that deliberate that you that you went there, you wanted to go to the top. It was obviously desirable to end up at a at a club like that. But to be honest, I was I was emailing and pestering anyone who would give me give me an opportunity. To be honest, you know, I said I'd accumulated plenty of time, of kind of semi professional amateur exposures too, and, and I was lucky to end up at a club like that. Really, but I guess a combination of persistence, experience, ambition, but no doubt a bit of a bit of luck as well. I applied to every other possible professional sports organization that I possibly could for for time and. And uh, I was just lucky that, that they took me on. Yeah. And you were there for, for a number of years uh, with, for the developing athletes that are listening in. You mentioned the performance side, success. Were, were there premierships involved with, with your stint at Leicester's Toes? Yeah, there was. My first three years in professional sport actually were, were grand finals, which I, I took for granted at the time. I haven't been back to one in, 
over 10 years now since that, since that last one. And yeah, I guess ironically, the, the first two years we won the league as minor premiers and lost the final. And the last one, I think we finished second and I managed to get over the line in the, in the final. And I guess like I, I keep saying it to the guys here at the Swans, you know, it's easy to think that that sporting career will just keep going. But in the time that I've been working in professional sport, people have, you know, it's a difficult thing to get a professional contract. It's a, it's a difficult thing to remain a professional sportsman and stay injury free and, and stay listed. And then it's even rarer. The majority of people go through their careers without having, you know, the opportunity to play in a, you know, in a grand final or, or win a medal. So when those opportunities present themselves at any level, you got to be, you got to be grabbing them. And, and thinking back at that time, like three in a row is an incredible feat because obviously then you're, you're the one that's hunted after the first one. Like what, what was something that really stands out when you think back in terms of things like leadership, the players, coaching staff, hard performance? Yeah. Yeah. I think there was definitely a high performance mentality in that, in that club. And it's quite interesting actually, because obviously there's a lot of focus on values, creating values. And I'm sure like most of us have walked into organizations where there's some inspiring words up on the wall to, to indicate the organization of those values. Border Refound is a place like Leicester Tigers didn't have that. It was more the consistent day-to-day behaviors of, of people that were there. And then that was very much driven by Richard Cockrell, who for those outside of rugby might not be aware, but is a pretty notorious, uncompromising head coach. But the consistency around behaviors was, was paramount. Yeah, it just wasn't acceptable. It wasn't accepted by the organization and it wasn't accepted by the senior playing group to turn up there and, and not to be, you know, not to be putting in effort every day. You know, and I've spent time, my experience at Melbourne is probably, that's a young organization, you know, trying to find its feet in professional sports landscape. And, and I think an organization like that is probably, you know, trying to instill and learn those sort of, those sort of values that take time to, time to develop. I would say consistency of professional habits, regardless of wins, losses, regardless of individuals' contract status, regardless of personal issues. And obviously there's going to be, you know, there's going to be fluctuations there. People are athletes or human beings at the end of the day, but the consistency of behavior was very, was very high there. Yeah, right. Okay. So it wouldn't fluctuate depending on a win or a loss. It wasn't reactive. It was just consistently putting in the work each day. Yeah, there was definitely emotional. I would say there was more emotion around the loss than there was emotion around the win, unless it was a grand final. Just it wasn't acceptable to be to be losing. But yeah, consistency of consistency of behaviors. And when I think back from even from athletic performance perspective of that side of it, you know, the athletic performance realm has developed a lot in the last twelve to thirteen years. It was literally a case of turning up and doing the basics very well over and over and over and over again over the course of days, weeks months, years even. And when there's a lot of, was there a lot of stability through the, the club at that time? Yeah. Staff and key players? Yeah, we were quite fortunate. I think, yeah, our, our department had a lot of stability and then there was a lot of stability on the coaching end too. And it's actually, it, you know, I, I was there for kind of the tail end of a very dominant period and it, it kind of slipped and it, it's interesting actually in the time they've come back to the top now, but in that kind of intervening time that I've been away, they went through a period of actually finished they've just won the premiership this year but they finished bottom of the league last year so it's a bit of a, a complete 180 but when that stability they now seem to have that stability again which is again correlating with the team being being successful yeah and then going back to your, your career journey you, you then to, by the looks of it you went to to make the move to australia in, in melbourne and what, what was your decision making there to obviously it was a successful club yeah and if your place where you have a, a first contract, I imagine it would have been a difficult move in, in a lead, lead role as well. What was your sort of thought process in, in moving countries? Yeah, I guess the opportunity came up quite quickly. Bryce Kavanagh, who's head of performance at England, England Soccer now, was, was at the Rebels at the time and, and we had had a bit of a relationship. He, he was at one of, the, one of the teams in Ireland and we'd compete against each other. And when I'd go home, I'd pop in and spend some time there. And uh, we had a bit of a relationship. I got a call one day and he was asking me about joining in potentially 12 months time and I was a bit non-committal so I'd probably sign on at, my, at Leicester and we'll discuss it and then a couple of days later I got another call asking if I could be there in three weeks there was a pretty quick decision in, it was a pretty quick decision in the end really but uh, yeah, I'd grown up watching Super Rugby and I guess the Australian sports landscape is obviously renowned globally particularly around the mm-hmm. sports science and athletic performance components so that was really attractive and then the opportunity to challenge myself in, in another environment so it ends up being a pretty quick decision, but a pretty easy decision. And I couldn't, I'm not sure if I thought this at, or realized this at the time, but I couldn't have learned more than, than that transition going from a successful team to a, 
you know, a very established, successful team, stable team to an organization that, you know, is still building and still finding its way. I learned some important lessons from that transition. Probably made more more mistakes and had to learn more in that first 12 months than any other point in my career. But yeah, what were some, some of those mistakes that you made? Because obviously go, that is a fair change going from a successful club to, to one that's developing. Well, yeah, totally different yeah. environment, I imagine. Yeah, different environment. And I guess this is what's kind of spurred my interest in this in this PhD question, which I'm um, trying to answer or provide a framework for. I, I turned up at the Melbourne Rebels after coming from a successful organization and came there and probably didn't appreciate some of the the differences between competition structure, the depth and the quality of player in the squad, the stylistic demands of the team. Yeah. And where athletic performance development sat in the performance hierarchy in terms of supporting the team, winning and losing, winning and losing games. So I came from a team that played a very attritional brand of rugby, like where strength, power, hypertrophy was a really integral part of how the team were trying to play. I also came from an organization, a team that played, or sorry, that had a lot of quality players within their squad. And so the, I don't know, the, the guy who was on the bench was also an international standard player. And because we were trying to play that kind of confrontational style, then I would say something like strength and power development sat quite high in the, in the pecking order in terms of supporting outcomes on the weekend. And when I came to Melbourne, I, I inputted pretty much, pretty much stuck that program into the, into the Rebels environment. And there's... Now, there's consequences to to driving up any physical metric, and that's okay if the if that's a decision taken from a collective organization. But I think yeah. uh, I, I kind of I took the view that I had the answers because I come from a successful organization, and what you realize when you come in there is the competition is shorter. It's pretty much a sprint. You play twenty eight to thirty two games in a European season. You're playing fourteen in a in in yeah, a right. southern Hemis- southern hemisphere competition. If you lose three games in a European competition around Christmas time, it's it's not good, but you can bounce back. If you lose three games in a Super Rugby season in a row, then your season could be season could be done. Yeah. Second thing is the the, the depth of depth of squad. Like we always had a, an international standard player who could come in. If there was a, an injury, but if you're trying to attack, say lower body strength, then your starting fullback gets a tight back. The next guy, he might be an international player, and the next guy might be a school kid. So the you know, the, the drop, you know, noticeable drop off yeah. there's a noticeable drop off, which has a significant, a greater, much greater impact on performance than increasing that athlete's strength numbers. And, and then game, so every game's yeah. yeah, every game counts more. And then probably lastly is the stylistic demands. I think when I came to Super Rugby is known for being, and the Rebels, especially at the time, were trying to play a really fast tempo, move the ball around kind of style. So they probably had more of an emphasis or we ended up having more of an emphasis as they understood the competition on. Maybe guys being a little bit lighter, speed development being a little bit higher in the pecking order, plyometric ability being a little bit higher in the pecking order. And strength's still important, but just that not that same need to develop athletes in the same way. So as I, I kind of learned those lessons through that transition from coming from a, from one organization to the other and a different competition structure to the other. And when I think about moving now into a completely different sport, then mm. the less the lessons from that transition have really, I think, have set me up better to, to make a transition like I have into the Sydney Swans. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing, mate. That's that's insightful into also your thought process of taking on a beast of a PhD research. Um, <laughs> talking about about that off air, but that makes a little bit more sense now. In well, on that topic of you know we talk about strength conditioning philosophies and you, like you mentioned, you know working in Europe, then to to come out to Australian Super Rugby and then now Australian Rules Football. Are, are there like non negotiables with your strength conditioning philosophy when you're the lead strength and power coach, or are you more now with your experience? Like you mentioned earlier, making some mistakes, how each environment is, has its own different demands. Therefore, you have to be pretty flexible. I think it's more, I, I think it's far more the latter. I actually think the kind of term of the philosophy fallacy, I think the, I actually think, you know, technical philosophies in terms of how we train athletes are like our job is to select appropriate tools and understand the environment and not really have a hard and fast philosophy. So my, my only, my only real philosophy is that the football programs comes first and that, and that dictates or starts to direct your training interventions where they fit, you know, how hard to push it, football first. And so I'll give Con Beyond being, you know, an Olympic lifting guy or a Westside Barbell guy or a have to do RDLs guy. It, it's really a case of like, how are the team trying to play? What is the individual athlete needs? And then how can we construct a, an appropriate intervention to support that? I guess my message has been since I arrived here is that there isn't 
if we take the example of the strength and power program, there actually, there isn't a strength and power program. There's only the football program of which there's a physical arm where everything mm-hmm. we're trying to, trying to do is come back to aspects of either directly supporting footy or increasing your availability or trying to increase your availability so you have more opportunity to train and get better at technical tactical outputs. So yeah, that would be my answer there. I think the only philosophy is to really start with the football program and support the football program. Yeah. And then, which which makes a lot of sense, with with, with roles these days, have, have you found that you'll have measures, key performance measures that can challenge that? So let's say you've got to put this much on the group with their box squat or anything like that, or is it moving more towards, which would obviously influence your subconscious motivation to try and get them strong opposed to if you're trying to help the team win a premiership and you haven't got those kpis yeah so we've done a lot of profiling of the athletes over the last year i think if i'm honest and i reflect of where we're at with the the strength and power interventions as an example this year i think the programming has been relatively generic some individualization were relatively generic and and we'll look to differentiate now that we've collected all this data over the course of the year we'll look to differentiate into force dominant, velocity dominant, maybe even guys that we just need to maintain and we're prioritizing technical, tactical development. That'll be, that'll be the step forward. But we'll, we'll produce physical reports for the, the coaches here and for the GM of football. And I've had some discussions around having KPIs around physical markers, but I actually think that's a, I think that's a bit of a dangerous route to go down. And I've had this, mm-hmm. had this conversation with some of the, some of the hierarchy here because it's a, the goal ultimately for people in our world, the goal is is actually not getting guys fitter or faster or stronger. The goal is winning more football games. That's that's mm. what we're trying to do or influence, have a contribu- have a positive contribution to the football program. And what you don't want is staff members working in silos, looking to justify their own positions by, you know, by maximizing physical outputs. I, and, and that's not to say there might be periods of time, uh, you know, I had one season in particular where uh, we were coming off the back of a pretty poor season and I would say a pretty deconditioned athletes. And at that time, you know, really driving up physical capacities, I think had a really, had a really positive impact on the team performing. Yeah. But that's, that's not always the case. I think it's key to understand. I think the, the key skill of being a practitioner in the team sport environment is it's not solely increasing physical capabilities. It's understanding where those interventions fit in the, in the greater purpose of trying to win, win football games and perform well on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they're not Olympic weightlifters or powerlifters. Yeah, oh. yeah, no, it make, makes a lot of sense, mate. And thanks for giving us a good insight into into whether philosophy is the right word. But I guess your thought processes in, in your programming with with influences of your career when when you look back, who have been some strong influences, mentors, if you like, that have helped shape your 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 approach. Yeah, I've been I've been quite fortunate, really, by accident. I think of uh, cross paths with a lot of. A lot of uh, experts and kind of almost founding fathers of kind of a uh, sports science in the in in the professional teen sport environment. And when I think of really early influences, probably I played a bit of tennis when I was young. I grew up near a tennis club, and my first ever coach there, one of my first ever coaches, a guy called Liam O'Brien, is even reflecting now is one of the best coaches I've come across in terms of improving technical ability, but also having you know, driving motivation. When I reflect back, I think, you know, being around someone like that at a young age had a pretty, had a pretty impactful, yeah, resonated with me on the importance of coaching and the influence that a coach can have. But then professionally, the first one, the first people I ever came across in the Irish sports science, sports science landscape, which maybe not everyone's familiar over with here is, is a Dr. Liam Hennessy. And he really set up a lot of the professional systems around team sports in Ireland, some of the stuff that's, you know, quite advanced now. And it, this was going on in the in the mid nineties, but athlete management system, centralizing player contracts so you could manage player workloads, stuff that really was ahead of his ahead of his time. And Des Ryan was part of that group as well, who's headed up the academy at Arsenal for years and is an expert in, in youth development. And then Alex Martin was my first kind of true high performance manager at Leicester Tigers, who is a little bit under the grid, but is is maybe one of the best guys I've come across for really understanding the the nuances of physical development, like really narrowing down on the the physiology of developing athletes. And and then the time I've been over here again, but Bryce Kavanagh has gone from, you know, has worked in professional cricket, has worked in netball, has worked in Aussie rules, football, professional rugby, and he's now heading up the program at England soccer. And I learned a lot from Bryce. Bryce's first role in professional soccer, football was England football is one of the top jobs in the world. And he's, you know, shown that uh, by having a diverse range of experiences and understanding poor performance more holistically, 
but he can have an impact. He can walk into a sport that he hasn't been involved with before and, and really have an impact. And I guess more recently than the last couple of years, Dean Benton, John Pryor, the guys involved at Rugby Australia are, again, expert practitioners and really think about performance more holistically than just physical development. They're always, I know Dean's kind of really hammered home and John Pryor have hammered home with me that, you know, actually developing general physical qualities is relatively easy, but it's how you transfer those qualities to, you know, to football performance is, is the nuance and the skill. So I've learned a lot from those guys. And then I'm fortunate to be part of a, a young, ambitious department here at the Swans. The Swans is a very stable organization that has had, you know, it's been a pretty stable performance team here for a long time, led by Rob Spurs, Mike Rennie, uh, Mark Hilgannon, did a great job here for years and years and have left a, left a solid legacy of run, run a good program here, a good legacy of research and development. And then we have a relatively new department here for the first time in a long time in the last two years. And we're myself, Rob Innes, Will Sheehan, Dan Casenza, working with a great medical team. I guess we're all influencing each other and trying to trying to build something here and, and build on the legacy of the guys that went before us. Hey there, hope you're enjoying this episode with Shane Leanne. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet of our interview with Burgess Conley. Hope you enjoy. You've witnessed and worked with a lot of successful teams and units um, across a whole lot of sports um, and businesses. Are there common traits that you've learned along the way that, that if you're working with a developing team or a developing unit that you try and work with straight off the bat? Like, I guess, yeah, I important think, pillars. Yeah, I think the, the first one for me is always is always honesty. And I mean that not in, in that you're, like, brutally honest with, with each other. But first of all, with yourself. Like, you mean, yeah. and that means if, for example, you're not getting in shape, well, you need to be honest about, you need to take a good, hard look in the mirror and be really honest with yourself but you also need to be honest with your coaches and with each other if you've got honesty now you can start to make progress because you can find the solutions quicker particularly as a team if you don't have that everything else is going to struggle you need to be humble and that's about that's having like a humble confidence you need to be secure if you're honest with yourself you're secure in knowing what you're good at but you're also secure in knowing what your limitations are and you're going to, and those are opportunities so you're going to keep getting better at those when you meet someone like that they're very very tough to beat to hear more from fergus make sure to scroll to episode 30 on the prepare like a pro podcast now back to the rest of the episode with shane hope you enjoy thank you for listening and and how many of those input that you mentioned from all different walks of life from from a tennis coach to working with colleagues at, at Rugby Australia, how many of them came organically and how many would you reach out to like you did with Leicester Tigers? Yeah, I, I guess I always think with the, and this isn't just true for professional development, but also personal development, I think it's a mix of formal and informal education there. So, you know, the, yeah, there's, there's just doing the ASCA level three at the minute and that's really good formal education, but then you're also connecting with people who are working in the MBA and MLS, you're, you know, you're having those informal conversations about some of the day-to-day problems. Some of them have, some of those relationships have arisen through, through working in the elite sport environment, but I think I've always been quite good at reaching out and trying to connect with people. And you know, a lot of us are trying to solve the same problems, you know, the, so if you can share your experiences, if you're willing to give something to give something and not just take information, then I think those relationships tend to, to nurture and develop quite well. And then on the academic side, I've been really lucky, particularly around Warren Young, who's influenced me a bit and, and encouraged me to do this PhD and Scott Tapley at Fed Uni, he's there at Warren and then James and Paul Gaston at Latrobe, who are part of my supervisor team. And they really drive the, you know, they're really interested in what's going on in the implied environment, but they also forced me to really be uh, vigorous and around studying and keeping on top of the, the academic literature as well. Yeah. And then going back to your, your career journey again, so you're at Melbourne Rebels for for a good stint there and, and then decided to move to Sydney Swans, I believe, was your, was your next role. Take us through your thought process in, in changing codes to Australian Rules football. Yeah, I, I guess I learned a lot from that transition, as I mentioned. I didn't realise <laughs> when, when I made that move from Leicester to Melbourne, it's that Dunning-Kruger effect. I think I, I thought I knew everything when I moved to Melbourne. I thought I had all the answers coming from a successful team. And... I learned so much in that transition when you're, you know, battling at the, the middle 
to the bottom end of the table at times. There's a lot more learning in those in those environments. And the role was very broad, part of a smaller team, smaller organization. So you really had an appreciation of what the head coach was trying to achieve, what the attack coach was trying to achieve, e- even what the commercial team were trying to achieve. And you understand that, you know, winning games is only part of it. This in a sport like rugby union in Melbourne, you're trying to, you know, create a commercial footprint in there as well. So uh, mm-hmm. it gives you better appreciation. So, so I guess I learned a lot from that transition and same when I was involved in with the Wallabies at International Rugby. And I guess I was aware that another big test of that would be moving to a code that I was relatively un, unfamiliar with. It's hard not to, living in Melbourne, it's hard not to get somewhere engrossed in, in footy, but I guess I've never yeah. been involved in the, the day-to-day running of it. So through that kind of sharing of ideas and myself and Robinus, Robinus was at uh, Richmond Tigers at the, at the time, we would frequently converse on, if we had a hamstring issue then maybe I'll seek his opinion grab a coffee with him and have a chat through it and I'd go over and present in our strength and power program he'd come over to the rebels and present on on some of the rehab philosophies at, at Richmond and through that information sharing when he came up here then we had a conversation about me potentially coming up and there was still a pretty thorough interview process following that but yeah the the thought of working in another sport the thought of working in a pretty prestigious organization like the Swans, and then also working with with Rob, who I knew was a you know a good guy, and you know starting to kind of really put our impact on or put our imprint on on an organization like the Swans is a pretty exciting opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And what were some of the biggest big challenges early days as you were taking on the role? Yeah, I, there were, there were some big challenges, but again, from that transition, I was I was much more ready and prepared for those for those challenges so one rob and i and will we didn't walk in here on a program that was floundering they'd been in they'd been in 19 of the last 22 finalist series there, mm. there was a lot of good things in place here there wasn't a rescue operation that had to be put in place so we had a very good handover from the previous performance department here and still very good relationships with mark Gannon and mike rennie were my two predecessors they're still very involved you know, as a as a reference point, I know Rob Spurs did the same for Rob Innes. So I, the first thing was being respectful of what had been done already. It's I came in mid-season last year and Mark Gannon, who had preceded me in my role, had pretty much the next month to six weeks kind of planned out for me to allow me to, for them to continue what they're doing and me just to get an idea of how things were running currently. And, and he was also pretty honest, like every program in Australia, the, the COVID situation had created you know, some issues and potentially some detraining around some, you know, some components. So Mark felt that there, you know, that he highlighted some certain areas where he thought there could be room for improvement off the back of the COVID situation. So there's a pretty seamless handover there. And yeah, it's been respectful of what's gone on before, walking in, understanding the landscape, understanding the the coaches, what, what the coaches are looking for in the organization from the, what are they looking for from the athletic performance department? I made that mistake of walking in the rebels and trying to make a name for myself by, you know, driving up physical capacities. And as I said, there's, there's consequences to that if you're not, if you're not aware of what the, what the organizational demands are and what the landscape is. And from the, from the strength and power point of view between the, the different codes, do you, is it like from a general sense, are you changing key lifts? Are they fairly different you know, compared to from rugby to, to AFL or, or are they more or less the same? You're just changing sort of your, your volume, your rep schemes and sets and, and intensities. If again, I think this is only my interpretation of it. And if someone came in tomorrow, they might make, they might make a different decision. But and again, this ties into maybe what I'm trying to do from a study perspective, but my my start process was, well, initially my start process was to, for them to keep doing what they were doing. I came in mid-season and was really be aware of where the program was at and where we could potentially add value after that. But it, it starts with the football program and you think, what are we trying to achieve? And I think in, not just here, but in footy generally, then, you know, contested possession and pressure are two things that contribute towards team success. So it's important that we have a strength and power program, which supports those aspects. And then... I guess for me, my decision-making process in regards to key lift, I don't, I don't think there's any one lift. I look at the running demands of some of our guys and, you know, we're trying to be a, you know, a high pressure team. Our, our training has significant running demand. So I, for example, something like a, a trap bar deadlift, I think is an appropriate exercise for our training pop, for our training group and our, our athletes. It's a, you know, it's an example of an exercise where you think I can increase neural outputs in regard to strength and doesn't have that same mechanical load that might cause DOMS or leg soreness and 
we can get those strength adaptations without the associated hypertrophy or the associated fatigue and allow them more time to for running around that intensity outside. So I guess that's a, you know, a micro example of some of the decision-making in terms of it supporting the footy program. Now, someone might come in and they say, I think a front squad is a better lift or a back squad or a Bulgarian split squad. That's, that's completely up to the individual, but that's just my interpretation of working from the football program back to help guide exercise selection. In terms of the, the differences between the sports, I was expecting a lot of differences, but I've actually been more surprised by maybe some of the commonalities. So the, I, I said the volume of strength training is, is less. Guys just don't need to be maintained the same and hold on to the same body mass. We would obviously have significant portions of our training in a rugby program that were focused around maintaining hypertrophy or increasing hypertrophy and increasing lean mass. That's probably not the case with the majority of our footy athletes. There are, there obviously is a group of players that are in that, in that category, but not many. So the volume is probably lower. The intensities, we try and maintain lifting intensity, but some of the commonalities around still running based sports, the ability to drop body height and be strong at low positions is important around the scramble for possession contest on the floor. That's also important in a sport like rugby union where you have to drop your body height to clear out a rock or make a tackle. So I've probably. I was expecting a lot of differences, and there are, but I've probably been surprised by maybe some of the commonalities that exist across sports as well, or across the sports. Yeah. And for the developing entities listening in that dropping that height drill, do you have technical ability? Do you help on the field with, with contact prep and, and, and ta- tackle technique? Yeah, look, I think that's the I think that's the goal standard is, you know, general training and then more specific athletic performance training and then finally tying it into a more contextual scenario so uh, we, we might do we obviously do some work in our you know in the gym prep wise around flexibility mobility maybe some coordination based exercises which tax that ability to drop body height and be strong in low positions and then we might go outside and have a you know have a, a drill focused around perturbations at low body heights and then it might go straight into one of the technical coaches and do a you know do a ground ball situation so you're trying to tie in some of those physical development aspects with the, with the technical action and i think that's Fantastic. probably the gap i think yeah. it's you know, the, obviously some of the Franz Bosch coordination based principles are, you know, quite polarizing, but for me, I think they, like that's, that's where they fit. There's obviously the, the need to develop general physical capacities and capabilities, but sport's not about maximal force output. Sport, team sport is about appropriate force production in short time frames across planes. And you can, you can do that in a like performance sense, but then it's also to also important to put that into a contextual contextual drill with the coaches as well. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine working with, with John Pry, been exposed to the Franz Bosch systems. It, yeah, like you said, it, it's quite polarizing, but it's very popular and it's made a big impact on the on the industry. Where does running mechanics sit with your programming in the gym or is that something you just do on the field? No, it, it fits in the fits in the gym as well. I think I think where I've been been sold on some of the coordination-based principles is that I don't think it's a it's not an and-or situation. And I guess for us, we've kind of you know done away with maybe some of those traditional warm-up, you know, the minivan, do your crab walks, do your runs, and we'll substitute that out for coordination. It, you know, it's lower, it's training against lower resistances, but it's still mm. it's still a training. Like guys don't need to be necessarily warming up like you would be to squat under a heavy you know, under a barbell or warm up for a heavy bench press. But I guess we've use those warm-up windows and inverted commas either on the field or session prep pre-training or the start of a gym session to integrate coordination-based principles, running mechanics, hip conditioning, trunk work. And there's the acute process of, you know, getting ready for training. I think there's a warm-up element to that, but it's also it's also like building a wall. You just keep adding those, you know, add a brick every day, add three bricks a day, and then you're accumulating those training exposures over the course of the season. Yeah. And was that something you brought into Sydney Swans or were they already doing hip conditioning and that Franz Bosch sort of philosophy? Uh, there's, there's definitely portions of it. And I guess like, I'm still learning the space too. Someone like John Pryor is excellent on the practical application of that in the team sports setting. He's, you know, he's a, a fair bit more advanced than where I am currently. But yeah, those are some principles that I probably got exposed to more with him and through Dean Benton. I, I, I guess where those guys have challenged me is that the definition of strength and power training in the team sport environment has probably gotten broader. So when yeah. you think about, think about, you know, when you think of strength training, you think of squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing, chinning, your traditional, your traditional general exercises. But where those guys have rechallenged me is that it's about 
you know, the ability to get when you're in a team sport setting in a sport like footy, it's also the ability to get in the right positions. So is your flexibility, mm. mobility good enough to actually drop your body height and pick up a, you know, pick up a ground ball? For me, that's part of the strength and power interventions that we put in place. The coordination-based principles, as I mentioned, like sport is not, sport is not having 700 milliseconds to generate max force. It's can you generate force quickly in 50, 100, 150 milliseconds, you know, across planes. If you're asking someone to compete on the floor around a scramble, then it has to occur instantaneously. Yeah, and I guess those things maybe start to bridge the gap between traditional strength and power training and and football performance. Yep, yep. And you mentioned the, the coordination uh, coordination aspects of it. So it's very much a, a skill and, and practicing and getting that building that brick by brick, as you mentioned. How do you find? You talk about the importance of the test coach motivation. Like, how do you find? buy-in with these drills? Is it something that is pretty easy or is it something that you have to definitely go in and be pretty prepped to, to build a lot of energy around these drills to make sure they're done well? No, I think they probably naturally lend themselves to engagement. One, you know, we, we try and draw everything, try, try and tie everything back to the football program. Yeah. That, you know, there's, I said, there is no strength and power program. There's only the football program and the aspects that we're putting in regard to our strength and power interventions or interventions on the field in warm-up or acceleration or speed drills are, are focused on the individual being a better footy player. The other advantage, I think, coordination-based training is that there's a real, by definition, there's a learning process to it. So it, it naturally engages the athlete. It's not, it's not a, a pre-planned movement like a squat or a deadlift and you know how it's going to go. You're essentially providing you know, a start point and an end point and asking the athlete to solve the movement problem, which I think is, I think that's engaging if you're, if you're an athlete, you're trying to, you know, you're trying to master something. And the other component to it is that us talks a lot about failure being necessary for learning. So we never, we never, if something is getting easy, then we try and challenge it through either greater variability or unstable surface or quicker transitions. And, and that, and I think that stimulates the learning process. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mentioned Olympic lifting a little bit earlier. Is that something that, that you do in, in your in your strength and power program? No, it's it's not been a mainstay. And again, it's nothing anti Olympic lifting. We probably not this one. We previously have done derivatives of that. It might be a jump shrug or, or something like that. And I guess I've probably probably gone to that default team sport athletic performance coach of thinking, oh, it's not the teaching time isn't worth the isn't worth the investment. But we've made a conscious effort with our first and second years and Dan Casenza, who, who works with the, works with me and particularly looks after the kind of late stage academy and, and those first and second years, we were pretty keen on those young guys having a broader curriculum of, of training generally. And he's maybe convinced me that, you know, it is a more viable tool. He started those guys, those first years who came in on the draft, Olympic lifting in November, and they're actually really proficient now in a, in a relatively short period of time. So yeah, Dan's work in that space has probably challenged, challenged my, my conceptions there. I think it might be a useful tool. Well, at the moment we tend to maybe use things like squat jumps or loaded counter movement jumps and try and drive some competition around that through the use of gym aware. And yeah, as you know, Jack team sport athletes are quite competitive. So if we can put an objective number on it and put it up on a screen that updates, then, then they tend to get around it. And I think there's, you know, there's a real sweet spot there on individualization and and competition in the team sport environment if you can have but ultimately i think that competition drives intensity and it's intensity that drives adaptation so there's always that sweet spot of having highly individualized programs you know someone we have those olympic lift variants and the guys are really good at it there's also value of having you know 40 or 50 kilos on a bar and everyone's competing to see how how quickly they can move that but certainly dan's work with the first years is maybe made me think about that it may be a more viable tool going forward yeah if you have that with the academy all the way up you've got, got time with them and yeah um yeah. what about with the coaching with the prep work with the with the coordination drills do you and dan break the group up in half and and so you've got more eyes on them in that sense or is it do you do it all at once like you mentioned that the power of the group no i guess we uh what we try and do is i guess what we term coaching heavy and coach light and we we try and have either days or portions of the training, which are quite coach intensive, where they're real technical components that we want them to improve on and therefore require, you know, plenty of eyes on, or we have components of training where we're happy to leave them go. And that might look like their upper body strength training. I don't think too many of our blokes need, need coaching at the minute on, you know, bench pressing and bench pulls or 
not too much cueing on trap bar deadlifts, but something like our plyometric work or coordination-based training, et cetera, I think needs to be quite heavily coached. So we try and period periodize that. And I guess the way we try and solve that program is, or that problem is we'll start every strength and power session with a rotation of hip conditioning, flexibility, mobility, their trunk work and a coordination element. And they'll basically work a little circuit there at the start, which is coached quite heavy. And, and then we'll kind of let them disperse into their, into their stations. So we've tried to set up the environment like that. And then we've also, I guess, tried to use, you know, those daily session prep windows or using the five to 10 minutes we have pre-training. So yes, warm them up, but also use those for quite, quite direct coaching interventions. You know, we might have a little acceleration group or the running mechanics group and, and we can grab those guys. And again, it's not a, it's not a significant amount of time, but it's probably microdosing those, those interventions over the course of over the course of a week and then over the course of a season. And you mentioned uh, periodizing like the heavy exercises, the complex movements with and with the light ones. Is that something that comes into account with like a six-day break or if they've just come from a big meeting, you simplify and you go, okay, damn, we're going to go lighter with them today because they've just been flogged, you know, with the coaches for two hours or, or is it more just an aspect of depending on what level you're at with your program and, you know, your accumulation phase in, in pre-season to the season? Yeah, I guess there's probably two two avenues to that. There's obviously kind of the the general team dynamic, and then there's also looking at the individuals. We obviously have guys who play, don't play, yeah, you know, and and our young guys coming through. So I guess we start with a kind of a, a general view of what we think is best suited for the group holistically, or probably the guys who played AFL holistically, and then we'll work through the individuals in terms of the prescription. Depending on where they're, you know, what their game demands have been, what the coach's requirements are of them. What we've discussed as a as a multidisciplinary team with the with the medical group, and then try and come up with appropriate interventions interventions from that. But I, I think an important skill in the team sports setting is what what we try and do is periodize like some of the cognitive load there. So we know when the guys come in on a Monday after a game that they're going to have a lot of information thrown at them from a from a technical tactical perspective. We know they're going to be sitting in long meetings and going through video clips and having one on one with the coaches. So I think a day like that is better suited to something that does not have high cognitive load in, in something like a strength and power session. You'll probably want to come down on a day like that. Mm. You know, get your that's where we tend to get our flexibility, mobility work done. We'll do 20 minutes or half an hour there, maybe a little bit of upper body and the interaction for myself and Dan is maybe a little bit and Rob is maybe a little bit less on those days because we know that the cognitive load coming from the coaches is going to be pretty significant. And then it might be vice versa the next day. You know, we're obviously playing a lot of footy the next day, but the volume of meetings maybe isn't the same. The review process isn't the same. So it gives us an opportunity to maybe put in some of that coordination-based work or coaching through the plyometric work. And it's obviously never a, there's never an exact science there. It's interpreting and managing the different variables that go into being, into managing a professional athlete. But that's the kind of general theme that we kind of try to take. Yeah. No, thanks for, for sharing it. For the athletes listening in, when you're working with an athlete for the first time, what do you get excited about when you see from an athletic point of view where this guy's got a lot of, or girl's got a lot of potential in their growth as, a, as an athlete? What I'd say to, you know, what I'd say to any young athlete who's starting out, I think you'll often hear stories of, you know, athletes later on in their career and they're, oh, they don't train that much, they just play. The, the majority of guys who reach the top of their profession are consistent in their professional habits and accumulate a lot of time training. That's what that's how you get good in the first place. So you get guys, and I think it's quite easy in the middle part of your career to get a bit more comfortable and to and to drift a little bit. But I find the best guys are the people who have, you know, if you're Richie McCall's really famous story in rugby union, the tail end of his career, only you know training once and playing a game. But that's because you've accumulated fifteen or twenty years of con- consistent training at the top level. That's how you become an elite athlete is by is by being consistent and experiencing a lot of a decent Tom Brady a quote recently or a while ago, we talked about retiring. He's like, why would I retire? No, I've never had more answers to the problems that I see in a football game. That's, mm-hmm. that's how you get good. You accumulate a lot of experience. So I think it's always exciting when you get a young athlete first time in because the, the environment is so new. The, the support services around them, you know, they're getting meals delivered. They can have a massage after training. There's someone working with them individually to, you know, to improve. And the reality is if you've reached it to an AFL list, then you're, you know, you're in that top 1%. You're in that 1% or 2% athletically anyway. That's, that's the reason why you're there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it, it's exciting when you see their, how enthusiastic they are. I think the message I would have is that it's important to maintain that as you get 
and that's true, I think, as you, you know, if you're playing VFL football or if you're playing local park footy, you get good by accumulating consistency and accumulating training time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Consistent habits, like you talked about earlier with the, with the head coach at, at least Tigers, how important it was with mm. behaviors. So you, you mentioned a few highlights so, so far, but is there one that really stands out and the highlight of your career, something that you're really proud of throughout your professional career today? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that I do something that probably counted more as a vocation than a job. I'm lucky that I, you know, this is my hobby as much as, as much as something that, that pays the bills. And I'm very lucky in that sense. And there's been, there's been some highlights there. I guess being involved in premiership wins in the UK was, I probably appreciated it more now as I go further away from them. So that's, that's what I thought professional sport was going to grand finals. And I haven't been, haven't been back to one in a decade. You realize how special those days are to actually win the, actually win the big prize. The, the Melbourne Rebels experience was like, there were some tough years there. Like it's, that's had a profound effect on me as a practitioner. Like I'm definitely a lot better from being, being there surrounded by, you know, good practitioners and good people who are trying their hardest to get to, you know, to get to that level. And then I work in international sport. I, I just did a, a season with the Wallabies, but being involved in a Bledsoe Cup win or a Bledsoe Cup game win, I should say, not a, not a, not, a, not winning the competition or winning the cup, but being the All Blacks and Suncorp was pretty special. And then again, I probably didn't appreciate how big it would be, but being on the sideline and involved in game day, watching, watching Lance kick his thousand goals was pretty, it's probably one of the most insane things I've been in. It probably maybe is the most insane thing I've been involved in, in professional sport. I actually didn't really comprehend. Really? Yeah. I didn't, didn't actually really comprehend because obviously I haven't grown up here and I've never seen a, <laughs> a pitch invasion, but it was like obviously seven minutes left and the kit man came to me and he's like, oh, we need to get everything off the sideline. And I was like, why? It's like seven minutes left in the game. And he's like, mate, they're going to go nuts if he kicks it. I was like, well, like shortly at the end of the game. He was like, no, mate, they'll go straight away. I was like, you can't get anywhere near the pitch in most professional sports. And so I, I was of the, the very wrong assumption that if something was going to happen, it was going to happen when the final whistle went. But uh, yeah, that was a pretty special event to be involved in. Uh, it was crazy. I was watching that on the TV and I, yeah, it would be uh, once once in a, um, if, if not more, experience to 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 even just see it, let alone be there. Where, mm. where were you at, at the time? Were you got, were all staff tucked away inside somewhere or were you on the ground? Yeah, I was on the sideline. I was just by the race. And so the uh, aunt is our logistics manager. was like, we just have to get everything off. Like all the spare, because obviously there's jerseys and spare boots and all sorts of stuff on the sideline. She was like, we got to get it out. And yeah, there's some pretty hectic stories from that night of people coming over the dugout and crashing through physio tables and oh, kids tripping up and their parents running away and, you know, trying to get in, in close to the action. But yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was an exciting night to be a part of. hundred percent. And then on the, on the flip side, what about a major challenge that you've overcome in your career and, and what have you learned from it? Well, how did you grow from it? I guess. Well, well again, I, look, I, as I probably highlighted that transition from Leicester to Melbourne, I've learned so much from that experience. I think if I'm honest, when I reflect back, I was, you know, maybe quite lucky to to survive that first kind of twelve months, really, after that transition to to Melbourne, with all well, with good intentions. But I, I think I probably created more problems than what I solved in the short term. So was that me like injuries or what were what yeah some of the yeah things? yeah there was some of that. I think look, there was no significant injuries there, but I think what we had, you know, the, the maybe in my first season there, I think we had three guys pull up with facet joints. You know, on a Paris, you know, I always think stuff happens. I'm pretty comfortable with. With the fact that if you train 45 blokes for four hours a week for 40 weeks of the year, then the chances of something happening, something to someone at some point is you've got to be okay. You try and mitigate risk, but something might occur to someone at some point. Yeah. But I think we had, you know, three short term injuries in my first season there at Melbourne, but three of the cost blokes games at the, you know, at the weekend, something would happen on a Thursday and they wouldn't get up for the Saturday. And as I said, that, that has a significant impact on on team performance at the weekend. Mm. And uh, like, that was a pretty significant challenge. You know, as I said, I probably had a bit of that. I was going through that kind of an Kruger cycle at the time where I thought I had all the answers because I come from a really successful program, was used to being aggressive with prescriptions and going in and have to tell a coach that so-and-so is at a aggravated as fast joint doing X and Y Z on a Thursday isn't an easy conversation. And then having to do it a couple of weeks later is not a, isn't even harder conversation. But I, I learned it. I learned a lot from that from that experience one being more considerate and understanding what the you know what, what what are some of the other pressure points for some of the other stakeholders that are involved in the organization and then just being more resilient with that stuff as well you know being if you're uh yeah if you're 
training athletes regularly or if you're an athlete training regularly yourself then you know occasionally things will go wrong and you have to be resilient enough to kind of cop that or review it try and learn from it and then and then go on yeah yeah well said mate and it for snc's listening in that are managing a program and maybe going through that current experience right now what were what what would be your review process and then how would you with more experience now, how do, how do you manage it? I guess better than than at the beginning where you're, you're dealing with these these hard decisions and then also being able to communicate with the coach. Yeah, well, I think the important thing is you know, that ideally you want to be making as many of those mistakes as you can if you're a young practitioner in the amateur environment. You know, where it's it's no, it's not a positive experience anywhere. But when the consequences are a little bit less, that's where you want to be learning, maybe you know, trialing things, making mistakes, and then learning from them. I think if you are in the pro environment, what I learned from that is to be, yeah, I, I think the skill set has been considerate of how you impact the holistic program and that's mm-hmm. and having, an under, having an understanding of that. And that's not, that's, I hope this doesn't sound like it's a case of being conservative with prescriptions. That's not the case because it's just understanding when's the time to push, when's the time to maybe consolidate, who are the individuals that we need to maybe look after this week or who are the individuals, individuals that we need to push to make them greater chance of being selected in the team in four or five, six weeks time. I, I think it's been quite honest with yourself, like in being going through a pretty thorough review process, speaking to other practitioners in the field, speaking with their, most of us are working as part of multidisciplinary teams. Even if you're part of a local footy club, there's probably a physio there or a head coach there that, you know, really honestly reviewing those situations and reviewing your practice. And then also understanding that stuff will happen. You're, you're the game of AFL or the game of professional rugby union is a tough game and if you're constantly protecting yourself then you're not going to be prepared and the injury is not going to manifest itself maybe on a you know on a gym session or a field session but it will manifest itself when you're trying to perform it at the weekend at some point yeah which is totally worse for the for the coach yeah. when you're playing yeah. that down yeah and, and the, the worst thing you can do as a practitioner is to is to go is to be afraid there and being conservative and you think okay nothing's happened under my watch but if you're picking up we're all responsible. Everyone in the team is responsible for for team performance at the weekend. You know, so the yeah, it's not to look after your own self interests. It's in the betterment of the organization and the team going well. Awesome. Well, well said, mate. Then we'll move into the the, the get to know you side of the, of the podcast. Yeah. So they're a bit lighter these ones. But if you're a quote man or, or just a general life motto, but have you got a favorite inspirational quote or, or a life motto that you sort of live by? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of right in my top mode journal every day when I'm planning my planning my day and one's a like a strong opinions weekly held so I think where I am in my career is that I believe in certain things because they're evidence-based and I have experience to suggest that they work but there's nothing that I hold that I believe in so firmly that if I'm presented with information to the contrary that I'm not willing to change my mind and that that's happened numerous times over my career and it's probably a little bit of a red flag for me these days when I speak to someone and they seem really sure I think if you talk to most people that are you know if I look at the people who are much more experienced than I am then they obviously have a lot of experience and they are working from a, an evidence-based practice but they're still they're, they're still trying to figure out how to solve problems in the environment they're not entirely sure what the best solution is in you know in, a, in the applied environment and then the second one's probably on the same theme like one of the what is it as the island of our knowledge grows so too do the shores of our ignorance. That's a Johnny John, Johnny Wheeler quote, I think. Which you know, the more you learn about, the more you learn about human performance and team performance, the more you realize you don't know. And it's a you're dealing with a complex organism and a human being operating in a complex environment, like a game of footy or a team sport environment. So there's a lot of variables there, which you can never you're just never going to have a full grasp of all the variables that impact an individual and impact team performance. And I think that's quite a when you realize that, it's a humbling experience and probably makes you more comfortable not knowing all the answers and more highlights the fact you just need to continue on that educational process. Yeah. Embrace the chaos, eh? Embrace the chaos. What about in your work life? What are your pet peeves? What, what, what makes you angry? I, I guess I just, it, you know, that consistency beats comes back to me, I think. And I, I get it. I get it because professional athletes are blokes in their 20s. And I think my own personal journey at probably didn't start to figure out who I was personally until I was maybe even closer to 30 than I was at 22 or 23. But the obviously the perception is that what you're doing is going to keep going forever and that, you know, eventually the flag will come and the premiership will come. And, and the reality is that it's quite a, it has a short lifespan, even if you have a long career. 
And so I think inconsistencies in behavior and, and getting bored with doing some of the things that we know are, you know, that we know are important for not just athletic performance, but human performance, nutritional habits, good sleep quality, you know, having, being engaged in aspects outside of footy when, when I see people getting inconsistent with some of those behaviors that tends to irritate me, but then that might be, it's obviously important to realize too, that not everyone is as, as straight laced and boring and disciplined as I am now. And I probably wasn't like that either when I was 23 or 24. And, and what about when you have a day off or what's your favorite way to, to spend your, your day off when you get one? Oh, well, I'm, I'm very lucky to have a, a supportive wife who has really allowed me to pursue my you know career ambitions. So it's uh, always good when you get a bit of a day off, just to have some family time, to be honest, you know, and, and spend time with, she's a very successful career in her own right, but probably with the nature of professional sport is that it, it's quite demanding. And mm-hmm. as a result, you know, she's had to, she puts in a hell of a shift at home. So it's always nice to spend time with my family with Sarah, my wife, my daughters, four and bundle of energy. And then we've got another one on the way in August. So probably, yeah, spending time with family, drinking some coffee, hanging out at the beach, sneaking in a gym session, probably yeah. it's a, it's pretty basic, but it's what makes me, what makes me happy. Yeah, the good life, the, the good life. Recharge and connect with, with, with home. That's awesome, eh? Well, yeah, thank, thanks so much for jumping on. We'll, we'll wrap it up now. What, what are you excited about for 2022? You got plenty going on with Sydney Swans, family, new, new bub on the way, and, and obviously your PhD that you embarked on as well. So what's front of mind at the moment that you're excited about? I guess professionally, I, I really think we're on the, we're on the verge of potentially doing something with the, with the Swans. You know, I said, I, you know, it, it feels, uh, I'm, I'm still learning the game of footy, but the environment and the vibe feels like it did at those Leicester days for me. And it's, you know, I think we could really do something. We've got a really good mix of experience and guys like Joey Kennedy and obviously Lance Franklin, Sam Reed, and then some really quality young blokes coming up through Chad Warner, Errol Golden. So it just feels like professionally we could really do something in the next couple of years, which I'm excited about. We're in the process of constructing this uh, new training facility down the road, which is really exciting professionally. And I guess with the, the, PhD and speaking with you and work and ASA, I just feel like what's essentially a, a personal interest around that I've experiential personal interest around that decision making is also starting to filter in some way academic and educational and professional interests, which I'm quite excited about. And then, yeah, family met's going to be going to be hectic in six or seven weeks from now, but I'm excited about meeting our little daughter and our family being complete. So it's, a, it's an exciting time there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, you're living a full life, mate. So congratulations and thanks for sharing with us your journey so far. Clearly there's more years to come, but yeah, thanks for, for sharing with us and, and being so open and honest as well with what's worked and some le- learnings and lessons along the way as well. So yeah, really appreciate it. No doubt I've got a lot from it, but also the audience of, of athletes and strength industry coaches and the practitioner work in elite sport. But yeah, on behalf of all of them, thank you for, for jumping on and sharing with us. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the, the time and having the conversation. For, for those that want to get in contact and, and asking questions, where's the best place to get in contact with yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm not, I'm not the best on, on social media, but probably you can find me at LinkedIn. I'll be sitting there with the, I, I really need to spend more time on photograph day at the, uh, you know, it's the team photograph day because I always look a bit scruffy, but you'll find me there on LinkedIn somewhere in my, in my swans polo, Shane Lehan, and anyone who wants to connect and, and reach out, I'm happy to chat. We'll add the link in the show notes, guys. And uh, yeah, thank you for everyone that's tuned in live. If you joined in halfway through or at the end, make sure to tune into the very start. This this episode will live on our YouTube channels. And once we end live, you can watch it from the very start. And then the podcast recording will be live next Tuesday. Our next live chat will be with Larry Stomroff, who is also a strength conditioning coach. He's currently the coordinator of the Bendigo Southeast College. That will be at 8.30 p.m. Friday the 15th of July. So I'll see you guys then. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. 
and then game changes, yeah, game game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the strength conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. welcome rama to the chat uh rama has also worked at at box hill or currently he's working at box hill hawks with us awesome. so he's another box hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department so I'll hand it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, – I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know – or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just to, be, to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time. Um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single minded back then and um, you know I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment. It would have got me a lot further, and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro, or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.